0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello there. Welcome to today's New Books in Education, one of the podcast channels in New Books Network. This is your host, Peng Fei Zhao, speaking to you from Gainesville, Florida. Today, I will be talking with Caroline Henrik, Jennifer Darlene Adjuana, and Anna Lee Good on their new book, Equity and Equality in Digital Learning realizing the promise in K-12 education. Well, we all know the COVID-19 pandemic has profoundly changed the landscape of K-12 education in our society. Since last March, many states closed their physical schools and shifted to remote education. The massive shift is historic and unprecedented. Until now, while well, we are hopefully seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, in our know, battle against the coronavirus. Millions and millions of students are still learning at home via online learning platforms. It is also because of this shift that digital learning all of a sudden has drawn attention from not only educators, but also general public, from families to policymakers. Over the past months, we have seen concerted efforts to invest in digital learning and improve the required infrastructure. In spite of this unexpected, yet very much welcomed attention from the society at large, digital learning and teaching as a field has existed for a long time. Experts in this field have been documenting and exploring the best practice and required policy supports. Today, I am going to talk with three researchers who have been working in this field for a long time. Caroline Henrik from Vanderbilt University, Jennifer Dallin Aduana from the Georgia State University, and Anna Lynn Good from the University of Wisconsin Medicine. They just published their new book with Harvard Education Prize titled Equity and Quality in Digital Learning. Realizing the Promise in K-12 Education. The book systematically studies the implementation and best practice of using digital tools to reduce inequalities in educational opportunities and improve student outcomes. Although the book was out right before the start of the pandemic, the lessons, best practice and insights they highlighted in their book have so much to offer for educators, policymakers, and families to navigate a teaching and a learning landscape during and after the pandemic. All right, now let's turn to Caroline, Jennifer, and Anna Lee. Hello, Caroline, Jennifer, and Anna Lee. Welcome to New Books in Education.
0: Thank you. So glad to be here.
1: Yeah, thank you for joining us. Um, Uh, And also congratulations on publishing such a wonderful book. It's very informative. Thanks. really appreciate it. Yeah. um, Just to get us started, would you like to uh, briefly introduce yourself to our audience?
2: Sure. I can go ahead and get started. This is uh, Carolyn Heinrich. I'm a professor of public policy education and economics at Vanderbilt University, and uh, I've been studying... um, I uh, was previously at the University of Wisconsin, Madison, University of Texas, Austin, but uh, started this work when I was at the University of Wisconsin, Madison, many years ago with um, my colleague, Dr. Annalie Good.
3: Hello, uh, my name is Jennifer darlene Idwana. I'm an assistant professor at Georgia State University, and my focus is on the equity implications of online and virtual learning.
1: Welcome, Jennifer. Thank, Thank you. you. Mm-hmm. And welcome, Carolyn and Annalie.
0: Thank you. I'm uh, Annalee Good and I am a researcher and evaluator at the Wisconsin Center for Education Research at the University of Wisconsin-Madison.
1: Well, thank you. Um, and how did you come together to work on this project? We want to hear some of the behind the scenes stories first.
2: Sure. Well, I'll just continue. I, I, I can mention that um, Annalee uh, and I first started working together at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and we started with um, uh, working with one school district um, there in Wisconsin, Milwaukee Public Schools. And uh, our interest in digital learning grew in part out of what we were seeing when we were setting um, out-of-school tutoring in in various large-scale districts. And then um, I was at the University of Texas at Austin and we expanded our partnership to um, Dallas Independent School District and other districts. And so um, also, uh, continued our focus um, on digital learning. And then um, I moved to Vanderbilt and, and Jennifer uh, was a PhD student at Vanderbilt University and, and she joined in our study early on. And I think we we were, as you mentioned, we were working on this uh, research long before the pandemic. Um, the roots of this specific study were in um, where we really honed in on looking at the uh, implementation and impact of, of digital learning in about 2014. And so it's been a, a work that was developing over five years.
1: Well, that's, um, that's really a long uh, time commitment. And indeed, uh, we would love to hear your thoughts about, you know, the pandemic, whether the pandemic is a game changer for your field or, or like any of the new stories. But, uh, you know, before that, I just want to share that I'm also an educator and a researcher myself. So I even teach online courses for years. But before reading your book, I was not quite aware of how much coordinated and systemic efforts educators need to put in in order to make quality uh, digital learning for their students. So reading this book really changed my mind, my understanding on this issue. And um, I don't know, I mean, maybe we can get started with um, what is the book about and uh, even, you know, something like what is digital learning and how digital learning has been implemented in the American public schools? So um,
2: I'm going to just, I'm going to say a little bit and I'm going to hand off to my colleagues too. So one of the things we, we do in our book is we look at how digital learning is implemented at different levels. And so we're, we're looking at, for example, when, um, you know, of course, we have some programs at the national level to encourage and support digital learning and the infrastructure, such as internet. And then um, states often make decisions about things. For example, we have heard of states discussing one-to-one laptop initiatives for the states. And then local educational agencies also um, make decisions about, you know, what types of digital tools they want to bring onto their campuses Um, and then schools also have to make decisions about how to um, use uh, leverage technologies capacities for the ways in which their student bodies uh, need them. And so we, we, in our book, we look at each of these levels decision making about, you know, for example, like I said, what tools do you choose? How do you integrate them? all the way down to the classroom. And so we look at each of these levels and then dive deep into the classroom experience and even into the tools themselves, which um, Annalie and Jennifer have done a particularly interesting deep dive into recently.
1: So so Jennifer and Annalie, would you like to uh, chime in and share your thoughts on this?
3: Absolutely. I can talk about um, some of the deeper dives we've done into the curriculum. And so um, we we started by looking sort of big picture at policy level implementation at the state, at the district, um, even at sort of the, the district or um, like school level. And we realized more and more just how much sort of these predominantly for-profit vendors were really shaping the educational experiences of students um, that were interacting with their programs. And so a lot of our more recent work has looked at uh, what exactly the content is that's being taught, um, how instructors are who are predominantly hired by the for-profit companies are sort of shaping that experience and are or are not personalizing content for students. Um, And so a lot of our ongoing work is looking at uh, things like the level of authenticity. Are we actually able to encourage higher order thinking or real world relevance? And what does that look like in an online space? Uh, and then moving further into what does cultural relevance and responsivity look like online? And how can we create environments that are able to provide that on a larger scale, provide what we know to lead to higher quality instructional environments for students? Um, and what that looks like when you're not just administering it through a school setting or or with an individual teacher, but having to partner with and work with these larger technology-based companies to develop the resources to support that type of learning.
1: Well, thanks, Um, Anneli, anything you would like to add? Um,
0: Yeah, thank you. I was just gonna add to the thinking about, like we we do think broadly about what digital tools are. So in thinking about that it's um, on a school level that can include, actual hardware, so one-to-one devices, padlets, tablets, um, or and or the software that's used to support instructional uh, spaces that use digital tools. It's also the internet connectivity. So in thinking kind of broadly about what digital tools are, then thinking also about the different spaces pedagogically that that, that uh, lives in. So it can be the curriculum, it can be part of the instruction, it can be part of the assessment process. So I think we, one of the things that we appreciated about the opportunity to kind of go broadly and deeply into this work is to look at all these different ways that digital tools play out in a classroom, um, because sometimes it changes day to day from a classroom, how the digital tools and which tools are going to be used and how different adults, typically adults in the space, but also the capacity of youth matter um, and how those tools are actually enacted and implemented.
1: Well, thank you for um sharing this larger picture. I think this is re- very helpful. And um hey, I I'm so curious. I'm very curious. I'm very curious to um to ask and to know more about, you know, before the pandemic, this may be our a lot of the learning probably was happening in the classrooms. And now since Last spring, since the start of the pandemic, a lot of the learning has been moved to say, students' homes and maybe physically distancing classroom, or maybe even in a learning path. So what does that mean to digital learning? So
2: one of the things that we, because an advantage we had in our study, because we did look at, um, study digital learning, as Emily mentioned, a variety of tools um, over time is we were actually able to see, for example, how um, the federal E rate expenditures on improving the internet um, was changing the quality of the experience in the classroom for those using digital tools. So for example, one of the things we tracked in our study was looking at how um, time lost due to technology problems like a lost internet connection, or inability of a student to log into their device, or um, some other challenge. There's always, if you have ever taught with technology, um, no matter how uh, you know much support you have on your campus, things go wrong, right?
1: And so we had measured. Yep. I um, mean, I'm as a parent, I, I kind of experience that on a day-to-day level.
2: <laughs> yeah, and and we even experience it in the classroom in our own teaching, and so. Um, But one of the things we saw was in part due to some of those investments and as well as um, districts learning over time to what it takes to support digital learning in the classroom and on campus, we saw things improving. So there was less time off task um, because of technology disruptions. And and we had measured that 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 type of time was directly correlated with how students were learning with the technology and their outcomes. But what happened in the pandemic, of course, right, so all those improvements were kind of campus-based, right? And then during the pandemic, um, as you mentioned, many children were learning from their homes. And so now you had circumstances all over again where um, the access to technology wasn't equitable. And we also saw, you know, for example, when we were doing our observations, our study, you know, didn't was based on both classroom observations as well as large data analysis of actual micro-interactions of students with technologies. We use both quantitative and qualitative methods. But what we had seen in our observations, for example, if someone was learning from home, let's say with the online tutor, if someone else in the home was also using the bandwidth or there was noise in the background or other you know activities happening, it was much harder for those students to concentrate and focus and to have, you know. Consistent instructional time. So all those things that we were making improvements on um, over time, we saw you're kind of starting over when now you have students spread in. So you can think of homes as, you know, many classrooms with differing access to technology and supports in the home, right? I mean, the other thing we learned from our study was how important instructor in the classroom was and instructor helpers. Um, to facilitating consistent use of technology for learning. And that's not guaranteed in the home either that you're going to have people capable of assisting the students with the technology.
1: So I'm, I'm so um, curious about how this pandemic could change the whole field of your, like of the digital learning field. Is it like a game changer or is it still, uh, have you been seeing some of the New manifestations of the old old issues.
3: That's a great question. Um- so, I would argue that despite some notable differences, um, that a lot of the main findings of what we were seeing translate. They just might look a little bit differently. Um, so, like Carolyn was talking about sort of expanding infrastructure, we've seen that uh, speed up at, a, at an incredibly uh, faster pace, expanding broadband infrastructure, um, access to technology devices at homes, things like that. Um, but those continue to be barriers and continue to be areas that we need to continue moving forward. Um, the other thing that that we saw through our work is that online and virtual and digital learning-based courses work really well for some students sometimes. And I think that we're seeing that um, on an even larger scale right now, that because of the infrastructure investments that have already been made, I could imagine that virtual learning will continue at a larger scale. It might just be one course for a particular student. There might be more students opting into an entirely virtual learning experience, but there's gonna be some students for whom um, this is uh, a really powerful, Powerful tool to meet their individual learning needs. Conversely, there are some students that aren't being well served by this model. Um, And one of the things that we observed in our work with um, the two school districts we worked with was that sometimes allocating instruction for some students to a virtual space might allow the teacher to better meet the needs of other students. uh, face-to-face. Um, so this can happen in a school setting. For instance, uh, maybe some students are doing practice or enrichment activities online, and the teacher can work on uh, remediation or other types of intervention with students who can really benefit from that face-to-face instruction. But we also saw this on uh, the scale of like students being assigned to a fully online course, and that could reduce class sizes and allow the teacher to focus more on students who are are in that face-to-face instructional environment in a way that they couldn't when they were serving maybe twice as many students. Um, and so I think that the opportunity for virtual learning to be part of a bigger picture of personalizing students' uh, uh, learning experiences maybe has um, uh, be, been made clear and some of the infrastructure to implement that has been um, developed and invested in sooner because of COVID. But a lot of those same patterns um, we're seeing, we saw pre-COVID And I think that once the pandemic area of crisis schooling has ended, we'll continue to see sort of on a larger scale moving forward.
1: So that's very interesting. And Jennifer, you just mentioned, um, like a moment ago, you mentioned this role of for-profit sector, private sector, um, the role they played in uh, improving the infrastructure to implement digital learning. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that, because I feel like their existence or their presence in this uh in this whole digital learning conversation is a little bit of shadowy for the public. As we know, you know the um, the government, the state and federal government are making investment, and we know that educators and families, students are making efforts. But what is the role of say you know the for profit, uh private um, sector in uh in improving, uh, in promoting digital learning, prior to the pandemic and during the pandemic.
3: So that's that's a great question, and it it's a huge, like multi billion dollar industry, and so it's hard to to fully generalize. But I think it is important to note that often there was a for-profit industry in traditional face-to-face schooling that uh, we all experienced growing up in, um, let's say, the textbook manufacturers, like what is put into a textbook and uh, instructional guides or workbooks that might um, be provided to support that learning. But a lot of Digital learning, in addition to selecting the content and providing instructional guides, is now also uh, hiring and training um, and providing literal scripts in some cases to the instructors if there are instructors um, who are delivering the instruction itself. And so in a lot of ways we're seeing sort of an incursion into the instructional core of schooling that we didn't see on that same scale in the past. And I think that that's something that isn't discussed a lot but can have a large implication on students' learning experiences. And so um, definitely is something that through our work we've tried to make people aware of and reflect upon the potential implications that can be used for good. Um, It can be used to um, scale equitable learning practices, but it can also, if there is a lack of awareness about quality instructional practices or what equity in schooling looks like, can have a, a sort of oversized negative implication on students' learning experiences as well.
1: So if I understand this correctly, you are suggesting that that the um, private sector's role could really be a double-edged sword in um, digital learning, in students' learning, and teachers' teaching. Uh, what are some of the examples, like concrete examples? Can you give us some of the examples? Oh, I don't know. I mean, which I one mean, of you would like she, to take the question?
2: <laughs> sure, I mean, we can we can talk about that. And Anna Lee, I know, has, has written on this, wrote on this issue more broadly too, and I'm sure she will want to chime in a little bit. But I mean, so, you know, it's the private sector, as as Jennifer was saying, has long had a role in um, developing content, right, for um, for students to use, and whether it's textbooks. And you know, when when you go to digital form, right, it's it's sometimes content, as as Jennifer was describing, plus the tool, right. And so, um, you know, one of the things that we we learned through our study is that, you know, when when technology developers create a particular type of tool whether it's a tablet with embedded um, you know uh, applications or platforms that can access a- applications or it's a you know w- other kind of one-to-one device or an online instructional program like Jennifer was describing too um, you know they, they make assumptions about you know students, uh, capabilities for interacting with those tools and about where they are let's say on grade level and the reality is especially and um, we were studying you know large urban school districts is that students at a given grade level may be all over the place in terms of their ability to use those tools and so one of the things that we have come to understood is and one of the things we talk about in our book is that um you know the This is a really big market for technology, for developers of of digital technology for use in education, but districts can advocate for those technology developers um, and vendors to be more supportive and active and actually making sure those tools are used in ways that allow, for example, personalization of instruction at the right level or modifications for students with disabilities, or you know, adequate supports for teachers so that teachers can understand how to use those tools well um, to make those kinds of um, adjustments in the classroom or for a given student on the platform, so that they can learn well. And I think what we've come to understand is sometimes um, you know those tools are sold with a lot of promise, but it takes a whole lot more effort to actually deliver quality instruction and equitable access to instruction than comes with any you know training that is with the tools. So you know part of what we've we've seen with our school district partners, what we've encouraged is that you know they work with the the technology vendors and developers and curricula and everything to to consider how they can be um, you know, more effectively used to really, if we if we all share this common goal that we want children to maximize what they can learn in their time spent interacting with them
0: yeah thank you and I it's such an interesting topic I really appreciate um, you digging in a, a little bit on this because it's I think one of the things I think about is that what digital what the digital space does in the conversation around the privatization in education is and, and both Jennifer and Carolyn touched on this is the scale that it that it provides and so we saw this in, in a couple different examples of the different context in which we were studying so one in particular is the use of private entities to provide tutoring um, to individual students and having that tutoring happening happen on it on a digital platform provided a scale to those private entities that the in-person tutoring companies and, and organizations could not compete with literally could not compete with and so in the, market of, in the marketplace of public money going to private entities to provide tutoring, the digital providers took over because they could scale and not only scale across a district, but scale across the country. And then some of the approaches, some of the platforms, they could also standardize in ways. Um, that then, again, scale out the, 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 the reach of it versus the cost of producing it, which is very different. I mean, one-to-one instructional experiences for students are really expensive, They're, that's in-person. <laughs> in-person one-to-one is very expensive. Um, when that changes to remote, that changes the scale, that changes the um, in you know, economic terms, like the efficiencies of it. So I think that that's a really important piece here. And certainly, I mean, in the COVID context, we've seen what happens in the market of privatized services and and goods. I think another important piece here is when instruction is digital and when curriculum is digital, it impacts the extent to which there's transparency around it. Um, And so you can imagine, we've had this in a couple of the different um, areas that we've studied too, where in some cases really the only stakeholder, the only person who really knows what that product is, is the student, because they're in the instructional space more than the teacher is because the teacher's got 30 students slash 150 students. How can they be in every single little instructional interaction that is created and then managed by a private entity? And so it, the, you know, the outsourcing, I mean, that's a strong word to use, but the, the transparency of it hasn't caught up and so that's part of you know Jennifer mentioned one of the things that we're um, started to do and are excited about doing is is looking more deeply into those actual curriculum and instructional spaces that oftentimes it's sometimes it's just the student who's who's interacting with. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, we've K twelve education has always partnered with private entities. Whether it's the busing company and Jennifer mentioned this early, you know, the bu- the busing company is a private usually a private entity. It there's probably no space. In the United States, where there's going to be only public K-12 schooling, that it depends on these partnerships with private entities. So, so that said, there are also things I think the COVID context has laid bare around that relationship of what should be privatized and what should remain public. And I and I really want to highlight the importance of internet connectivity and the quality of internet connectivity to making this work or not. And I think the discussion that's been renewed in the in the context of COVID around the internet as a public good has been really interesting and I and I think really important is that look, this isn't gonna work. This if public education is going to be as virtual as we think it's probably going to be going forward, it's not going to work unless there's equitable access to internet. And chances are then that means it's gonna have to be a public good versus privatized.
1: Wow. That's that that really helps to contextualize what's going on here. And I think as you all mentioned this partnership between the public sector and the public education, public schools and the private sector here is so new. I mean, it's very, very new for just uh, the parents, families, students, I believe maybe for teachers and uh, educators as well. So there is this sense of like, what's going on there? And all of a sudden we all have to, you know, help our kids get on the computer or help our kids get on the iPad to talk with their teachers. And it sounds like it's such a meaningful uh, project and meaningful investigation that you are doing just to, you know, giving us more, like offering more insights on this and um, like what's going on with this um, new popularization maybe of digital learning. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about this um, conversation about internet connectivity as public good as well. So I've also noticed that there are quite some uh, conversations on this, on the um, say pretty, really big influential uh, news media platform. And I wonder, so what are some of the rationale of why there was this revival of the conversation in the pandemic?
2: I, th- I think that goes back to my earlier comment that, you know, we had been responsive in terms of, um, public policy had been responsive in terms of making sure that Um, campuses had access to faster uh, internet speed and so we made really big uh, gains in the last you know I'd say you know five years or so in the number of I think we went to 99 percent of schools having access to high speed internet access and that makes a big difference when you have um, students using digital you know Uh, tools of various types, whether it's, you know, laptops or online instruction or tablets and things like that. So we did make all that progress on campuses, but when you're, when you're talking about home becoming the new learning um, space uh, or uh, then you have to think about not just, you know, institutions, schools, but everyone, everyone having access and that's a much bigger, you know, Challenge, uh, you know. For example, we've long known that it's been more difficult in rural areas to get, um, you know, high-speed internet access, and that's where I think you're seeing now more policy attention to that. I know in our own state, Tennessee, our governor has announced investments in that, and you know, and, and so there may, for example, if if you have been in a rural area, there may be some options but they may be very expensive and they may be not very high speed. And so you just don't have the scale there, um, driving, um, you know, the um, private private providers into, um, you know, networking everybody. But, so that has come, I mean, there, there definitely have been public investments over time as well, in just generally expanding um, internet access. But obviously we've learned through this pandemic uh, when, when we had to make it possible for everybody to, to learn online, at least initially, you know, many schools for some time, where there was some, maybe only a few weeks, but everybody had to figure it out. And that's where we learned um, how far we have to go yet. Yeah, but that's a bigger kind of uh, public infrastructure question uh, that is, you know, not necessarily just an educational question, because it also affects families' access to, you know, other types of services, public services that where we've gone to having digital applications or or things like that. So it's a it's a bigger question that goes beyond education.
1: Totally. I mean, I've seen people arguing for um, the internet, the free public internet access as a way to, you know, uh, support people's civil rights, for example. And, And I wonder, like, I mean, we've covered this part about the role of the private sector, uh, which is very interesting, which is um, sort of like a shadowy, in my opinion, <laughs> as a more like an educated general public. Uh, but I wonder what are some of the, um, what is the role of the school districts? Are they the major decision makers in terms of how those um, digital learning programs are implemented in schools.
2: Well, it's I'll just give one example um, of this. So when when we first started working with Dallas Independent School District, um, there was a, a school board decision that said, you know, we will go with a one to one laptop initiative and. Uh, and so suddenly, the schools were trying to figure out how they were going to make that happen. And it was supposed to be district wide, and they started trying to roll it out. And that's when they realized how many challenges there were. Um, so I think this is one of the things that we've we've talked about in our work. And we have a research brief on this. Is is the actual purchase of the tools is the cheapest part of probably the quickest and easiest uh, you know decision that they often make without thinking about all that has to happen with, you know, handing out devices to make sure they're used well for learning and instruction. And so, you know, that was one of the things we learned when we first started um, working with Dallas is is how challenging that was. And I could, you know, everything from just the logistics to getting the laptops the right place, um, decisions about whether kids should be able to take them home or not, uh, a, you know, Age and um, grade appropriate content and types of access to content on laptops. And I, I can tell you that that initiative did not fully roll out. Um, they made some changes and they ended up working with a, a foundation partner to actually, they needed that support. The support didn't come from the school board or the district for them to integrate it. They partnered with a local nonprofit foundation that actually helped not only fund costs of devices, but also provided an incredible amount of support to the district and training teachers and seeing how they're used the classroom, um, providing models for, for instruction and, and training that didn't happen just on, oh, how do you unlock this device and hand it out, but on what, what is you know, a good integration and of, of whatever type of device it is in the classroom learning for that grade. And so that was one of the things we studied in our observations and we've worked closely with Dallas and with the foundation partner to try and understand you know, what was working and what was not working in the different strategies they were trying to integrate those tools well. But I think that's one of the things we saw is, is people think that, oh, the biggest decision is about buying the device. And, and actually there's so much more that follows that takes so much more work <laughs> and Sometimes this is—it's often the case that the people who end up, you know, in the classroom implement, implementing it had little to no role in what technology would be integrated, when and how, and yet they are, you know, charged with with implementing it. So that's one of the things you know we document in our book as the different roles that instructors play, um, how they can be supported, different strategies they used, and so really what we try to do in the book is is share and show those things you know both what worked and what didn't work to, to help others who find themselves in this situation where um, suddenly they're implementing an initiative that they didn't necessarily create or or you know weren't able to have input and in thinking through how it would work um, in the classroom or outside the classroom if you're doing it in a, you know working with your your kids uh in a different location
1: you did there are, i mean I could only imagine how much effort these school districts have to put into in order to make this workable or feasible for families to do this during the pandemic. You know, I've ever seen, you know, in my kids' school, for example, like once, like every a few weeks, there will be this conversation about technology and anybody, any family needs um, they computer, for example, from the school, and they will have this pick up. Um, this is just a, like one opportunity for the parents to really glimpse at some of the efforts that school districts have been um, making to make this work. And I just wonder, you know, like what was the transition? What does the tr- what did the transition look like? Because there was this big shift last spring from implementing all of these programs in classrooms to uh, outside the classrooms? Maybe within two weeks, a a lot of schools need to make this transition, but do you have any insights or any stories that you could offer us um, about on this end?
3: So I think there's a lot of really important ways to answer that question, but a sort of building upon that really rich example that Carolyn presented, I th- I think one of the takeaways for a pandemic and post pandemic world of our book is that we followed this long term relationship over 10 15 years with two districts who in a lot of ways were early adopters of digital learning and for that reason they experienced a lot of pitfalls and a lot of challenges and we as a research practice partnership team worked together to identify what those challenges were and to figure out the best way to sort of work through those solutions and so our goal in writing this book was that not every school district, not every teacher, not every parent or student needs to start at that sort of ground level and experience all of those same challenges that we wanted to share that journey of how you work over time to implement a solid program so that other schools can start at sort of a higher level. With that said, we want to acknowledge that the emergency virtual schooling that was happening because of sort of this crisis-driven rapid shift is in no one's idea of what an ideal learning situation should look like, but over time as we continue to refine and improve and integrate virtual learning is part of sort of this larger idea of the uh, K-12 education system. I think that there's a lot of opportunity to pull from these uh, longer term experiences of the two districts we worked with, along with all of the more recent experience that school districts across the country are gaining through um, COVID era -era schooling.
1: Thanks, Jennifer. I think it's very interesting to see how it, how the the development of the digital learning evolved over the past several years, as you mentioned, and you have been following these two uh, pioneer school districts for almost a decade. And so so what are some of the examples about you know um, I think two of the keywords in the book is one is equity, one is quality. I wonder, uh, what are some of the examples of promoting, say, equity um, in digital learning, let's say, if we envision a post-pandemic world? What are some of the takeaway points we could uh, draw from the book to promote equity in digital learning?
2: So I'll just quickly give an example. And I know I'm sure um, Annalie and Jennifer might have one as well, but it is there needs to be, you know, there is usually an adult responsible in terms of the instructor and all again, in the pandemic parents have had to help out at home, but um, the, the students are, are, you know, depend on the ability to have an adult who can, for example, engage with them and assist with content learning. So even if the content is delivered as kind of Jennifer's describing, sometimes these curriculums are built into the tools there will still be times when those students need um, support, assistance, customization, um, help outside of the tool to deepen and um, move their understanding. As I mentioned, you know, not everybody in grade level is is consuming the content at the same level. And so we we need to, that the person who plays the role in whether it's in a classroom or in online communications with a student, it is really important for those instructors to understand um, you know, what their students' needs are. And, you know, I, you know, have been in classrooms and observed very different approaches. Some instructors who are very aware and attentive and work very hard to help those students who need, for example, additional supports, maybe outside of the, the learning they, they do with a digital tool. Um, and I've also seen, you know, examples where those students are in front of a digital tool or use a digital tool and, struggling on their own for the entire class period and never get that kind of assistance. And so, of course, like we mentioned, the challenge in the pandemic is when kids aren't in the classroom, someone still needs to understand where they are. And that's a really important, I think, equity issue, um, making sure all students have equitable access to those kinds of supports.
0: Yeah, so I really appreciate that description because I think it gets at a lot of the nuances of what do we mean when we say equity. Um, And I, I think that there's, we, we tried in the book to think about equity around access and opportunity and then also outcomes and especially the work that, that Carolyn and Jennifer did to look in really, you know, I think creative and innovative ways at, at how to look at outcomes, not only at, in the moment, and not only within the types of measures that are available within a district, but then linking it to measures that are, uh, you know, pulling on data that are collected with with our with the private partners, and then looking at it longitudinally as well over time. Because I think a really critical part of thinking about equity is thinking about again equitable access, opportunities, and outcomes, but also thinking about systems and thinking about uh, justice within those systems, for it to be equity focused, it needs to be justice focused. Um, and that I, I really appreciate the way that Carolyn and Jennifer think about looking at outcomes because it's towards understanding these systems level impacts of something like digital learning. So for example, not only looking at, you know, credit recovery in the moment for that 11th grader that just took algebra, but also looking at graduation rates, also looking at post-secondary attainment, and eventually also looking at where where do those patterns play out in, in the workforce? So, And these are systems-level questions um, that have implications then for what are we expecting of virtual learning? What are we expecting of digital learning in the role that we think education is supposed to, to play? So I, I want to highlight that, and I really, again, appreciate that that being part of a mixed methods team where the where the, the quantitative approach to understanding outcomes is nuanced and is equity focused.
1: So that really helped me to, um, to understand how you approach the issues here about equity. I mean, if we think we, we sort of like break them down to break it down to, Um, access, opportunity, and achievements, for example, and that really helps. Uh, What about uh, quality?
3: So I think in thinking about both equity and quality, moving beyond sort of traditional definitions, which are very important and we did look at, One thing that really emerged over and over and over again in our work was sort of the importance of acknowledging and recognizing and integrating students' humanity. And that's something that we know, whether it's a traditional face-to-face setting or a virtual setting is important. Learning is socially and culturally situated. Uh, Students who have a sense of belonging and can develop identities as learners do better in school. They have better intrinsic motivation. All of that uh, we absolutely know uh, is important in a face-to-face setting as well, but technology often um, has a tendency to be a little bit more sterile. Um, Different elements of interactivity can be more challenging to sort of implement on scale sometimes, although not always, they're replacing or removing the sort of instructor or opportunities for peer collaboration. And so I think that as we were looking at evaluating what makes a really uh, an equitable and a quality digital tool, that those conversations need to be had. It's it's sort of implicit often um, that those are things that you want in a traditional face-to-face classroom. But if they're not being discussed about when you're selecting digital tools, it might lead to something that's missing some of those really important personal and humanizing aspects of a traditional face-to-face classroom.
1: That, so that's a very important point as I, um, as I understand about this humanizing part. And also, um, I think th- it seems that on the one hand, we need to pay attention to these systemic issues. And by looking at that, we kind of need to um, use the numbers, for example. We need to look at the um, large scale data set, but then the humanizing part and the part of, you know, um, supporting instructors and families and the students and also you know um including their voice in your study i wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that
2: um, i also just want to before we i want to mention one other aspect
1: oh of, sure of how we yeah.
2: looked at quality and i think it's um so One of the things I mentioned we did was we did hundreds and hundreds of observations across our study districts and, um, observation instrument we used was based on what we knew about, you know, quality instructional practices. And so in a prior study, we had developed an observation instrument, um, looking at tutoring, then we adapted that instrument for the digital setting, but, you know, in addition to things like, uh, you know, looking at the actual content and Jennifer mentioned some aspects of, of content in, in our discussion today already that that we were interested in, but also looking at how the Instructor and student are interacting. So the instructors engagement, the students engagement, as well as their interactions between instructor and the digital tool and the student um, also students what we called um, you know how responsible the student was using the, the the tool as well in terms of, you know, were they, were they using it for the appropriate things? One of the things we learned is that, you know, students given a tool with lots of capacities can sometimes use it for things that, you know, weren't intended to be part of a learning um, process. And so um, we did have an observation stream which we documented over many, many observations. And we were able to look at, you know, patterns in, in student use um, and, you know, what we were documenting in the classrooms. And that was a real fascinating aspect of it. And I think, you know, the, the human part of it comes in there too, right? Because like we were mentioning, um, you know, how engaged the instructor is with the students in there, how engaged the student is. And that depends on, on, on how the tool is being used, how it's integrated in the classroom. I mean, if you just stick a student in front of a computer and let the computer drive the instruction, you can imagine how long they're gonna stay engaged versus, you know, other ways that we saw Um, sometimes instructors using really we you know we saw wonderful exemplars of instructors having students learn with each other using the tool Um, you know integrating um, games as way of learning and also having you know a mix of of whole you know whole group learning and part you know peer-to-peer learning and uh, you know a mix of, of both the tool and other classroom activities so there are lots of ways that um, you know, the, the instructional quality can be really exceptional. And then we saw plenty of ways in which it, you know, without those kinds of supports and engagement and strategies employed, um, it could be a not at all engaging um, process for students, no matter how many capacities the tool has.
1: Well, so that's very helpful in understanding this um engagement and the instructors and the students role in this whole picture and it seems that you know it attests to really how much it is needed for us to have a not only a big picture uh, a systemic understanding of this very new digital learning but also the we need to zoom in to look at how it works really for students and families. And and I could imagine, you know, for a book like this, offering this very um, comprehensive picture of the field, it, it must have like different types of audience. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what are, or who, who are the intended audience of your book and what are some of the best ways to use the book? Sure, I can talk a
0: little bit about that. That's, and that, I appreciate how you, um... Frame to that question. So we hope that everyone would find this book useful and interesting. <laughs> <that for> <laughs>
1: um,
0: we really did try to think about different levels of implementation and implementers and practitioners in this and, and really when we were writing the book talked a lot about um, kind of the, the zooming in, zooming out of the classroom level and then the district level and then the state policy level. And hoping that that there are insights coming out of the book and patterns that come out of the book and and really literally um, recommendations coming out of the book along those different levels, we really do hope that that um, educators, policymakers, decision makers along all those levels see parts of themselves in in the book um, and that can see ways that they can inform the work that they do um, out of the book. So the audience, um, we. We do we did want to write it in a way that, that people could come in and out of parts of the book um, and, and be useful but also that it there's an arc to it um, and that it tells a story throughout you know throughout lots of different case examples and lots of different types of thinking about data and thinking about um, interaction with digital tools um, and and we do you know throughout the process and then after the process we've really also tried to create additional um, pieces or products out of the book as well, um, tr- you know, really trying to work on blogs or op-eds or, you know, pieces that will get elements of the book out to different audiences. Because again, back to that equity question, y- you know, it's about, it's about informing practice. It's about changing practice. Um, but it's also about hopefully uh, impacting the systems around that either constrain or facilitate the kind of practices that we would like to see or the kinds of access that we would like to see. So we, we really do hope that there is a, a policy and a systems level audience for this as well.
1: Anything you'd like to add, Jennifer and uh, Carolyn?
3: Annalie, um sort of said this, but I can make sure it's stated explicitly that our editor was incredibly helpful at guiding us to make sort of each chapter so it could stand on its own and it could speak to a specific audience. And so one chapter is focusing on these policy level decisions and sort of leverage points. Another one focuses on more school level decisions or teacher level decisions or like looking specifically at, at the student outcomes and experiences. And so while we would hope that you would be interested enough to read the entire book, it also, you can pull out chapters that might be most relevant to you and sort of dive in there. And they were meant to be um, sort of uh, self-explanatory and that context is explained in each of those places. um, So that if you need a quick guide in a particular area that you're focusing on right now, you can sort of zoom into that chapter as well as reading the book more holistically from beginning to end. Yeah
2: and I would just add that we we did try to include you know many examples of what we saw in our work our observations in classrooms our interviews with teachers and so I think sometimes it's helpful for you know teachers to see you know what did that exemplar look like of a of a teacher using a digital tool really well or you know what were some you know things you know strategies that that we saw you know instructors developing over time or or those working to help support uh, the technology integration what kind of strategies did they that they develop you know a simple one like you know sometimes having a student technology helper in the classroom uh, can make a big difference when you run into those technology glitches someone can go around and help and look at devices not to mention it you know it makes those, those students feel really good about about their roles so there's but we also try to make sure that the book is sprinkled with things that would pique people's interest in terms of and maybe even see themselves um, in those roles as they're reading.
1: That's super cool. I hope, you know, I, I don't know who our audience are, but I hope our audience can really pick up the book and see themselves from the chapters and that can really um, shift their thinking the way how Um, digital learning is implemented in this country so that has been very um, interesting and helpful to have this conversation with all of you and as we sort of like wrap up our conversation I would like to ask what you are doing right now what what's what's your current project are you still collaborating or you have your own individual project
3: taking off Um, So, yes, we are absolutely still collaborating both amongst ourselves (laughs) and with the school districts that we've built these partnerships with. They're ongoing. Um, And as we've sort of hinted to along the way, um, we've been focusing more and more on the sort of direct student interactions with content um, and also the sort of humanizing aspect. And so our current work is um, partnering with not just school districts but now also now involving some of the um, online course vendors in the case of uh, the project we're working on to not just evaluate what it looks like once students are exposed to it but sort of go back a little bit and redesign what that online content looks like how can you make it more culturally relevant how can you make it more equitable in the design phase um, and then working with students to refine and get feedback um, and really create a new model for what a online learning environment environment and course can look like, figuring out what sort of training needs to be provided to in-district teachers to support that type of learning. Um, And so really trying to reimagine and and redevelop a more equitable model for fully online course taking um, at the high school level. So we are really excited about the opportunity for this partnership and and hopeful um, that this will continue to sort of move the needle on uh, what online learning looks like.
1: That's fantastic. Uh, Carolyn and Annalie, would you like to uh, add something here? Um,
0: No, I think Jennifer described it exactly. So thank you.
1: (laughs) Cool.
2: Yeah, I would just say that, uh, um, you know, obviously one of the things that uh, a lot of uh, policymakers, um, I've had conversations recently with people at the U.S. Department of Education and then our own Um, state policymakers have also been looking at this, you know, everybody's very concerned about learning loss and, um, you know, how uh, through the pandemic, how that will be made up. And so interestingly, um, they're coming back to thinking about things like tutoring, which is, you know, where we started in our study, looking at out of of school tutoring and how that was done online versus in person. And so um, we're kind of recircling back to, you know, what have we learned over time from implementing Um, you know, ways to to help students with extra academic assistance to to catch up, and I have no doubt that, you know, online is going to continue to be a platform in which we do this, and we're hoping that we can uh, learn from the years that we've been studying um, this, and and that goes back to to 2006 when we first started studying um, the tutoring uh, and, and the various ways it's delivered, and so Uh, we hope that we can learn from the research evidence we think that we there is a lot to say about um you know what are some guidelines what are some parameters um and really important um that we all i think we should also share and is included in our book is we did develop you know instrumentation um as we mentioned our observation instrument we also uh, developed like a short walkthrough instrument um for you know whether you're a school leader or uh, someone else involved in implementation to get an understanding of how technology is being used in your learning environments. And we really think it's important for monitoring to happen, for people to care and understand and and, and watch, you know, um, you know, how learning is taking place. And so we think that, you know, there are tools out there now, there's a research base that we can learn from. And I really hope that as we Um, move forward with concrete initiatives to address the learning loss from the pandemic that we keep all these lessons in mind and we hope that, you know, we can continue to be a resource for for others who are contemplating, you know, which direction those policies should, should move. We know we're in a resource constrained environment as well. And so we have to make, um, you know, good decisions. And, and so hopefully that's what we'll be doing going forward.
1: Definitely. Um, uh, is this a book project, or is this uh, more like uh, applied project? I mean, that
2: is what I was just talking about now is essentially uh, an evidence base that we've been developing, like I said, over more than a decade. And so we do have a website. Um, cool. We have a website uh, for our study uh, that as we have created links to that in the book and our materials. And then Anna Lee, I was, also sharing with the US Department of Education our our website from our um, study of Supplemental Educational Services implementation impact, which is still based at the University of Wisconsin Madison. And so um, we you know we try to make those materials available. We have numerous um, and you know publications are still coming out from our study. Jennifer and I had one come out this week. Um, they're they're still coming out, and and we are posting them and making them available. So yeah, so there's I think it's a it's not necessarily a new book project, um, but continuing work. And we've also created, for example, research briefs and things that help to distill, um, you know, kind of key lessons for different groups like policymakers and parents and others.
1: It sounds super cool. And we hope regardless, we hope we we will have an opportunity to invite all of you back to new books in education again and to talk about the new findings, the new insights that you would like to offer to our public and to our educators and families and students. Well, with that said, thank you all for joining me today. And it has been a pleasure to talk with all of you. And thank you for sharing your wonderful work with us. Thank you for inviting
2: us. It was our pleasure.
1: Thank Thank you you so much. Bye-bye.